0: Well. A wonderful time of worship through song. Thank you, David and Team. Speaking of team, the the team here at the church pulled together this conference in some four or five weeks and late notice and I've been to many impacts and this with the greater planning and the like there's often, you know, several Few more hundred people here than there is this weekend, and but I have never heard louder singing <laughs> so far. It's just been wonderful. The nature of our building is that it kind of all pours into this area, and so all your voices wash over, and that in and of itself is sanctifying and encouraging. And it's a real joy, and it's my privilege to spend two sessions with you. Over this weekend, one today and then one on Monday morning, considering the theme of sanctification. And Nick got us out the gate so well. Wonderful message there on justification. I give you fair warning that in this sermon here, we need to take some time. I don't intend to slow things down. Nick had us out the gate so beautifully, but I feel like I might do that. We need to establish the theological here now when we talk of sanctification, so as to fuel the practical application of our sanctification that we'll look at more so on Monday. And so in many ways, if you want to be truly sanctified, you have to be here at 9 a.m. on Monday as well. Some of us head off on Mondays, I know, but please do stick around. This opening session will be less like a regular sermon you may hear on a Sunday morning, more like a theological treatise. But the reason is to rightly fuel our sanctification. We need some serious building blocks. It's been quite the journey in studying all of this. As we were planning this conference, we wanted it to be fixated on the riches of Christ. The blessings that we have in the person of Christ. And so, so to have a conference with, that's dedicated to that wonderful phrase, in Christ alone. It really is a way in which we can seek to dig down and then draw out. Much of what we have in Christ so that our hearts can be lifted up together. Christ who is our righteousness. Christ who is our sufficient joy. And Christ who is most certainly our eternal rest. That is our justification, our sanctification and our glorification. Really the breadth of our whole salvation in Christ. And what the blessings of that look like. You know, we we rejoice in looking back, speaking in simplistic terms, we rejoice in looking back at our justification, we long for and eagerly await our glorification, and in between those two immense pillars of grace is our daily sanctification. We live here on earth, as Luther said, and as Nick gave us the Latin Luther said that we simultaneously are sinners and saints, justified and yet still in the battle against sin. Two words over these next two sessions that we have together. I want, to, I want you to park two words in your mind and we'll unfold what they mean as we go along in connection to sanctification together this weekend. And those two words are union and communion. Union and communion. But for now, just park those in your mind. It would serve us really well as we consider something like sanctification. Because when we think of sanctification, as I said, they are that is day to day. It is down in the nitty gritty of our life. And in the nitty gritty of our life is where we are prone to facing square in the face, as it were, our sin. The consequences of it. The battle of it. The outcomes of it the heartache of it and so it is fundamentally important that we take the time to consider sanctification union and communion it would serve as well to lay down a definition of sanctification before we really do set sail and so let's go ahead and do that but a little groundwork first when we talk about sanctification or what it means to be sanctified, we want to first observe that we are talking about those people who have received the justification that Nick mentioned earlier. Those who are believers in Christ. That's us here this weekend, and that's us each Lord's Day in our respective churches. If you were, or the world was, to describe who attends this conference or who gathers for worship in your churches, the name that is given is Christian, Christian. We are Christians. We know, don't we, that it was at Antioch that people were first called Christian. Yet when you read the Gospels and also the book of Acts, you see that the term disciple is most common there. And so Christians are disciples. We engage in discipleship and then as you survey really the New Testament as a whole, you also see that these Christians, these disciples of Christ, are also called brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. And so we can kind of handle those Christian, disciple, brother, and sister, each of those titles. But when you survey the New Testament epistles and the book of Revelation, you see that there's yet another title that is most commonly used to describe these Christ-following brothers and sisters. And that is the name saint. Saint. That's a little harder to swallow. When you think about it. The fact that God in his word designates the title saint to people like me and to people like you. Who... Were not at all saintly prior to coming to Christ and are not always indeed saintly having come to Christ. And who will be not truly saintly until we enter into eternal glory. You know, in this life, with a new nature altogether that we receive at the new birth. We still experience that daily battle with sin. Sin. The consequences of sin and the reality of the remaining unredeemed flesh. Not to mention the world around us. But we are declared saints. Saints. And as we think about this a little more, we begin to get a window into what God does down through time in his plans and his purposes for the world. And for those whom he redeems and regenerates inside the world and and a very unholy world. At that. To be a saint is to have been set apart. To be set apart for a very specific purpose. To be made holy. To be a sanctified one. And it struck me in my study that God begins his word with a declaration of setting apart. And he ends his word with a declaration of setting apart. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, there we read that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He sanctified it, He set it apart. And then, right at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 11, we read, Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy keep himself holy. And so, from the beginning until the end of God's special revelation, We see that God is a God who sets things and people apart. He sanctifies them. He makes them distinct. And so at that point of regeneration by the new birth, where we're given a new nature and then in conversion, which is by faith, we are set apart. We're made saints. That is our position at justification we are Christians we are brothers and sisters with one another we are disciples and we're also saints we are saints who are then placed on a path that is set before us a path that we are called to walk a path of sanctification positionally before God we're holy practically and progressively we have holiness to grow into And it's that practical and progressive and growing in holiness and grace, that is what is meant by the term sanctification. The best definition for sanctification that I have read is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It really encapsulates all the complexities and there are complexities and there are controversies Regarding sanctification, it it encapsulates all the complexities, all the dynamics of sanctification that I hope we will unearth together in our time over this weekend. It does so in a very succinct statement. And so let me read that for you. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. I want to stop right there for a moment and say, I think we've grown up. Many of us have grown up and we have not viewed sanctification that way. We have viewed sanctification like this. Sanctification is my effort and my zeal to make myself holy. But listen again. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And are enabled more and more. To die unto sin and live unto righteousness. What I want us to consider in our two sessions is today, first, if you're taking notes, the foundation of sanctification. And the fountain of sanctification. And then on Monday, we'll consider the dynamic of sanctification. And the direction of sanctification. In many ways, you could place on this session the word union. And then on Monday morning, even though we will hearken back to union because it's so important, you could place under the session on Monday communion. And So let's get underway as we consider this topic of sanctification by considering what I'm calling the foundation of sanctification. And with that, I'd love for you to turn with me to John chapter 20 in your Bibles. John chapter 20. It's here in this chapter That the Apostle John gives an explicit purpose for this gospel. John chapter 20, look at verse 31, you know this. But these have been written, that is, this gospel, these words, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. Too often, the purpose of John is simply stated as evangelistic. What's the purpose of John? Well, that people might believe. That is, It is indeed evangelistic. These things have been written so that you might believe under justification. That you'll trust that Jesus is the savior. The very son of God. That you will come with a very simple trust and receive a very strong savior that you will finally rest from your own works and rest in the beautiful and precious works of Jesus. But the purpose doesn't end there. As I said too often, the detail from the remainder of verse 31 is just kind of scooped up, jammed together with the first part of the verse. But but look again at the second part of verse 31 and that believing you may have life in his name. And So it's not only evangelistic, it's also experiential. It's also experiential. We believe and then behold the glory of Jesus. And then we keep on believing and then beholding the glory of Christ by faith. As the very fuel for our sanctification. We believe once under justification. And then we live a life of faith in the Son of God. Like Paul. For to me to live is Christ. The Christian life has rightly been called the good life. Not the easy life or the prosperous life. But the good life. It's a good life because of what it consists of in the spiritual realities that we are blessed with and showered with. But I want to ramp it up a little bit. I want to ramp it up a little bit and replace the adjective good with the word great. The Christian life is a great life. It's a great life. It doesn't mean that our life is not hard. It doesn't mean that Satan doesn't seek to steal our joy. The Christian life is a great life. Our believing, our faith, our trust in Jesus places us into this new life. It's a great life. It's a life in His name. And the reason it's great, and the reason it's a life, and the reason it is His name is because at conversion by faith, that is by trust in the finished work of Christ, we are placed into what theologians rightly call union with Christ. Union. With Christ, And I would submit to you that it is our union with Christ that forms the very foundation for our sanctification. Our journey of growing in grace and holiness. So here in John chapter 20 verse 31, we have believing under justification, believing into the Son of God. That's a very important part about justified by faith and the whole of the Christian life. We believe into Jesus. We believe into him. We not only just believe in him, but we believe into him. And then the basis of our sanctification, namely life in him, is that living out of the newness of life. And if there's one thing that the gospel of John shows us, it is that a dynamic of our sanctification is the beholding of the glory of the person of Christ by faith. And we'll consider that more on Monday. But for now, this foundation for our sanctification, this union with Christ, it's worthy of our utmost attention. Outside of Christ, all are in Adam. In that Adam is uh, the team leader. The captain, he, he represents us in our natural state that we were born into. As our federal head, the, when you hear the word federal, think covenant. As our federal head, as our representative head, we were all united to Adam and being united to Adam means that we are united to everything that Adam possessed. As a result of the fall in the garden by Adam. Death and sin obviously arrived. We were then in union with that death, that sin. We were then in union with a guilty standing before God in union with Adam's sinful nature. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, speaking of Adam, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men. And so Adam was for us and still is for the lost, the head of all mankind. But Christ, well, Christ is the head of the new humanity. He's the head of the new humanity. Adam was our natural head. And now by grace, through faith, Christ is our spiritual head. Christ was was and is the mediator of a covenant of much grace, abundant mercy. By the shedding of his blood, we're atoned for, we're washed clean, We're placed on this path of righteousness. And the reason we can walk this path of righteousness is, I want you to note this, is because Christ went ahead of us all on that path. And we are in full union with Him. Over summer holiday, I watched a documentary on free climbing. You don't ever want to take up free climbing. I have zero interest in taking up free climbing, but I know there's some of you out there that probably do that and love it. Just watching out of intrigue, it had footage from California's Yosemite National Park where we've been as a family and watched those courageous climbers climb and then hang themselves off just incredible cliffs. And it also, this documentary also had some amazing, magnificent climbing on the South Island here in New Zealand by the Southern Alps, I imagine, where we're yet to go as a family. And what struck me was how incredibly important the lead climber was. They're out in front, they're navigating all the crooks and crevices, they're safely Navigating a path and even placing equipment in the rock face. So that those coming behind are therefore energized to persevere as they're encouraged to see a way to advance ahead. You know, in Acts chapter 3 verse 15, in Acts chapter 5 verse 31, Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 12.10. Jesus is spoken of there as being the archegas. The archegos, an intriguing little Greek word. She used to describe Jesus in all those passages. As prince in Acts chapter 3 and 5. As author in Hebrews 2. As the captain or the pioneer in Hebrews 12. Prince, author, captain, and pioneer. Dr. Hughes, in his esteemed commentary on this very word, archegos, states that, quote, It's difficult to translate satisfactorily. It signifies one who is both the source or initiator and the leader. The source, the initiator, and the leader. One who first takes action and then brings on those on whose behalf he was acted to the intended goal. You see, as it pertains to life in His name, sanctification, Jesus is our lead climber. He's our lead climber. He went out ahead of us. And He didn't just go out ahead of us in some vague way. He went out ahead of us to the Father. And how did He go out to the Father? Well, by becoming obedient to all that the father assigned him as the son to do. And that included taking on the form of humanity. And that included growing in wisdom in that humanity and growing in knowledge in that humanity as we read about in Luke chapter 2 verse 52, where Jesus, it says of him that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. How, how, how can God grow in favor with God? Well. The point is, is that speaking about his humanity. We are loved by, we worship, we serve the God-man. The God-man. Jesus in his humanity obeyed. Jesus in his humanity endured. He endured temptation in the wilderness. And also in his life, he was tempted in all ways that we are, yet without sin. He suffered he suffered particularly unjustly in a host of ways in his life and obviously upon the cross for us in our place. Which is why Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned obedience, it says, from the things which he suffered. As Nick unfolded so beautifully for us, Christ amassed Righteousness in his living and in his dying that is then credited to, that is imputed to the one who believes. And so through Christ's active obedience, he earns that righteousness for us. And get this, it is by that obedient life that he lived by going to the father ahead of us. That some remarkable realities occur for us. And I've been so incredibly indebted to the works of John Owen and Sinclair Ferguson and Walter Marshall and so on. Those remarkable realities that occur are these. Because we are united to Jesus Christ as our lead climber, that prince and pioneer leader, since he has lived in obedience to the father, because we are united to him, because we are, as has been well said, roped to him as our lead climber. He brings us to the father by working in us the same obedience that he had to his father. Which is not ours. As we'll see soon, simply by passivity. Or solely by strenuous self-effort and activity. But by grace and by faith as we lay hold more and more of Christ. And all that is possible because Jesus was the first and only fully sanctified person. And he went ahead of us. And he climbed that holy hill for us. Psalm 24 has just become so dear to me over the years, for there in that psalm, we see Jesus as the one who with clean hands and a pure heart climbs the holy hill that you and I could never have access to because we do not have clean hands and a pure heart. But he climbs that holy hill as our lead climber. And then after ascending that hill and dying for our sin, he then ascends into heaven's Glory as the first fully sanctified God, man, the first sanctified person. And because we are united to him, connected to him, dare I say it, carabined to him, to use a climbing analogy, our lead climber, he works faith and obedience in us by grace and presents us to the father. It is a beautiful truth. Christianity is far more than simply just sins forgiven. Have you thought about this before, that Jesus takes those whom he adopts, those whom he imputes with a perfect righteousness, and he takes us and he presents us before the father, not simply as sinners, not guilty. But as ones who now share in everything that he has shared of as a son. Beautiful, eternal fellowship with the father. Our lead climber makes our life very great. Sinclair Ferguson says of this, quote, Christ is our sanctification. In him, sanctification has first come to its fulfillment and consummation. He not only died for us to remove the penalty of our sin by taking it to himself. He has lived, died, risen again, and been exalted in order to sanctify our human nature in himself for our sake. End quote. I made mention of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 that speaks of Christ as our archegos, our lead climber, our pioneer. Well, verse 11 of Hebrews 2 says... For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. Someone say amen. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Our union with Christ is the very foundation of our sanctification our growth in godliness. This is very different than go do this and go do that and you'll be sanctified. We must do this and do that, but we must not get the cart before the horse. Jesus as the son clothed in humanity grew. In obedience, and I love what one commentator said of this, he said, Jesus grew not from imperfect to perfect, but from infancy to maturity. And what is truly beautiful and what is truly astonishing and what is truly worthy of praise is that because this has occurred first in Jesus. It can and will. Occur in our lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's a great Christian life. And so the foundation for sanctification. The foundation for every daily battle. With sin and the flesh and the world. Is this union. With the first fully sanctified person. The Lord Jesus. Who himself. Because our life is so great in this Christian life himself then becomes the only sufficient source, the only sufficient supply for growth in holiness and sanctification in our own personal lives. Turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. And when you get there, look at verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. In the verses prior, Paul has stated that we come from ignoble stock, that we are not wise in the world's eyes, we're nor, nor are we like the strong in the world, but we are weak and yet chosen so as to shame the world that think that they are strong and wise. And then in verse 30, Paul writes, but by his doing, you are in Christ. There it is, in Christ Jesus. Verse 30, I want you to know, it does not simply say, by God's grace you believe in Christ. Though that is true, it says by God's grace that we are in Christ. In the Greek, pistoian in, at least in other places, we believe into Pistol and ice, we believe into Christ. This is one of the many times in Scripture we read that phrase in Christ. It's just too many. Time will not allow for us to consider them all. Yet on Monday, we will jump back into union a little further too. But another text is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Let me read it for you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are united to Christ by faith, and it is that faith, that trust, which we know from Ephesians 2 itself is a gift from God, placed into a very vital, a very spiritual, and the theologians call it a mystical, not pagan mysticism, but mysterious. A very vital union with Christ, who is, as I said already, the first and fully completed sanctified person, having gone out ahead of us to the Father, having been sent from the Father's love. So the Son runs to the Father, having been sent from the Father, and it's all a wonderful display of the love and grace of God. As that first sanctified person, and as being united to this sanctified person, it is then why Christ can be, as it says there in verse 31, look there, the rest of verse 30 rather, that Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We're going to talk about the means and the dynamics of sanctification on Monday, but allow this glorious truth. Of being united to one who is himself our sanctification. For he himself is that pioneer lead climber whom we are roped to allow this truth here that Christ became to us our sanctification. Allow that to just sit a little in your heart and soul. Allow it to warm your affections. Allow it to usher in a sense of the love of God. The love of God the Father for you in Christ Jesus, the Son. You remember the words of Colossians 1, 19? For it was the Father's good pleasure... For all the fullness to dwell in him, the Son. And if you couple that, those words, with the very special words found in the very first chapter of John's Gospel that I would love for you to turn with me to, John chapter 1, if you couple those words with these very special words, we see even more evidence. That this is a great life. That this Christian life is a great life. And if you're taking notes here now is that second heading, the fountain. Of sanctification, the fountain. Look at verse 16. For of his fullness, speaking of the son. For of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The reason there's a fountain of sanctification is because there's a foundation from which this fountain can then flow out from. And so if the foundation is union, then the fountain is the person of Christ Himself. Crucified, risen, and ascended, sanctified God-man that we are in union to. All that he possesses is what we possess. All the riches of heaven's blessing and the storehouse of those new covenant promises. Never, ever fail to fill your heart and mind with the new covenant promises we have in Christ. They are so rich. The forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. The permanent indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Peace with God, eternal life, the list goes on. They are all ours because they are his. They are all ours because they are his, for he purchased them on our behalf. But one thing to consider. One thing to consider is that Christ purchased what he did, certainly for us, but not so much as they are for us, as much as they are for the Father. One of the key things about sanctification is getting outside of ourselves. And one of the beautiful things about sanctification is we begin to learn as we study that we are the love gift between the Father and the Son. In Titus chapter one, verse one and two and second Timothy one, nine tells us that our salvation and our sanctification were prepared before time began. Where the father gave the people, gave a people to the son. The son redeems those people that he was given. The spirit comes down through time and regenerates them and applies to them all the purchased blessings of the new covenant in Christ. And then the Godhead triune does a work of sanctification in them. And then the Son gives those people back to the Father. You read about that final act in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. Of the Son giving the people back to the Father. And so we are beneficiaries of the love that exists between the Father and the Son. And then from out of that love, we are brought into that full and lasting union with the beloved Son. And verse 16 there that I have just read, verse 16 tells us that it is from that fullness. That fullness of eternal love between the Father and the Son. And the fullness of the love revealed to us in the fact that verse 14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That we, people most undeserving, receive from the riches of our God in the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It says there that we receive grace upon grace. You see, there's something I need to add about our union with Christ. For our union with Christ not only acts as the foundation for sanctification, our union serves as the fountain of our sanctification. And The reason I can say that is because our union was not something that simply is ours at conversion. we lay hold of all the blessings of our union at conversion when we place our faith in Christ. But the reason we are moved by grace to lay hold of Christ by faith is because our union with Christ takes on very, two very real aspects or two manners of our union. Federal union and faith union federal union refers to what has been ours before time began, covenant. That is, before the foundation of the world. You see when it says in verse 14 of John chapter 1, look there, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's referring to a people who see Christ's glory. They see Christ for who he is. They're not like the rest of the world, the rest of the people who did not receive Christ. They saw Christ for who he truly is and that he was the only begotten from the father. And the reason they see. Is because before the world was. The Father gave them, that is, those to whom he covenanted with to give to the Son. And the Son lived for them. He lived for those that he was in covenant with, that he was in federal union with before time. The Son sanctified himself fully for them. He died and rose again for them. And it's from out of that immeasurable fullness that we then receive grace upon grace. And why does this all matter? And why is this important? Well, because inside those double graces, as we could call them, as Calvin called them. Nick gave a Latin phrase, and I'll give you one. Got to keep up with Nick. Duplex gratia. Duplex like Lego, duplex gratia simply means double graces. It's from out of that fullness that we receive grace upon grace, our justification and our sanctification. right there in verse 16, our justification and our sanctification. It's at our justification, That we lay hold of our union that was ours before time began. John Owen uses a beautiful illustration. I'll try and recall it for you. There's a prisoner locked away in a prison. There's a governor miles and miles away. Who receives a letter to pardon that prisoner. The governor signs that document. He then gives it to one of his officers. His officer then must travel by horse and cart four or five days to get to that prisoner. That officer then passes it to the ward of the prison. The warden then passes it to his officer. That officer then hands it down and places it into the hands of the man in the jail cell. And they open the doors and he goes free. He was free the moment that governor signed that signature. Our union was eternal When the triune Godhead, before time, covenanted in the eternal decree to bless us with justification by grace, and to aid us in our sanctification by grace. We lay hold of that certificate from the governor, if you will, by faith. We receive all the blessings at the entry point of faith. To lay hold of the full measure of our union with Christ is to lay hold of all the various points, as Sinclair said, of our Savior's activity that he performed on our behalf. He performed a lot of things for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. And thus we receive all those promised and purchased spiritual blessings That are ours. Which includes. Our progressive. Sanctification. Having been justified by faith. And thus actually. We then practically. Lay hold of our union with Christ. Right at that point. We receive the first grace of verse 16. In our justification. And then. We receive. The second grace of verse 16, our sanctification. You see, it's really important to grasp that our sanctification is not from us. It's not in the ultimate sense even by us. It is from the same place our justification is from, namely the fullness of God in the person of Christ, because it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And so the fountain for sanctification is Christ himself. Because from him flows the fullness of grace and truth. And I want to say this. When we think of grace in this sense, we've got to realize, again, as Sinclair would say, that grace is not a thing. Grace is not some intrinsic force that kind of exists outside of the Trinity and just hovers around and we kind of receive this energy. No, 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 grace is Christ himself. We receive of Christ when we partake in the means of grace, we we fellowship with Christ when we come around the table, we fellowship with Christ when we sit under the preaching Of the word of God. And so as we are sanctified by grace. It's not as though we're sanctified by some intrinsic force. That is in and of itself altogether excluded from the person of God. No, we receive Christ. That is what it is to be sanctified by grace. Grace is receiving God himself. Look what verse 17 says. Verse 17 says that grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ. The law which drives us to our justification was given. It says there, but grace and truth, which ensures our sanctification, was revealed through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten from the Father who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He reveals the Father to us. Grace comes through the person of Christ. In his life and in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The Westminster Confession rightly states, They who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are Father sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. The one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one whom we receive by faith. Christ alone who is fully sanctified and thus serves as our sufficient sanctifier. You know, one commentator said, quote, our justification and our sanctification can no more be separated than Christ himself can be divided. And yet if you begin to blur the two, Nick's going to say amen to this. There's a lot of problems that can arise. He said amen. I want to talk about one of those problems that can arise in a moment but in these two graces here of verse 16 of john chapter 1 we see christ for us in justification and we see christ in us for our sanctification we have christ for pardon as calvin said and we have christ for power The pardon of our sins, justification, the power for our sanctification. As we behold the revealed glory of the person of Christ and lay hold more and more of that glory by faith and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we will grow in grace and holiness. And we'll talk more about that on Monday. It was Robert Murray McShane who famously said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks of Christ. But everyone just stops there. He said more than that. He continued on. And he said, because he is altogether lovely. And such infinite majesty. And yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners. Even the chief of sinners. The foundation is the union. The fountain is Christ himself. Well, we've laid the theological foundation and just glanced at the fountain as it were. On Monday morning by God's grace we'll drive it all home by considering the dynamics and the direction of our sanctification even the role of the law and the way in which our union affects our communion and I'll give you working definitions of communion. Kind of tie it all together. Seeing how Christ in us is the powerful mysterious work of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of holiness, Christ Himself working in us and through us. A lot of explaining. Let me do one little thing of application. When you begin to blur justification and sanctification, you can begin to go really awry. And What I mean by that is this. God delights that his precious children have full assurance of their salvation. The Roman Catholic Church removed that assurance. Tried to anyway. The reformers said, no, no. And why I say all of this is because there'll be some out there who struggle with their assurance. And to lay hold of our sufficient joy, the person of Christ, and to see clearly the foundation that is our union with Him for our sanctification. One of the key means by which God uses to sanctify His people is a full assurance of your faith. And if you begin to treat sanctification like justification or justification like sanctification, you are going to face heartache in your heart. I'll tell you for why. You are going to look to your own works of obedience for the grounds of your right standing before God. The believer must look to the objective work of Christ on their behalf. You know These are important things, particularly for you pastors and elders out there, counselors and the like, and everyone as we disciple each other. I want you to imagine that, I'm going to say Billy and Bob, and if your name's Billy and Bob, then I'm sorry, but I don't know you. And this is not personal. I want you to imagine Billy's over here, and then Bob's over here. And Billy, Billy professes to be a Christian, but Billy is happy to get drunk. Billy's happy to sleep with ladies outside of marriage. But Billy comes to church and Billy says he's a Christian and Billy sits on the second row and then Billy just keeps engaging in these sins. Then you have Bob over here. Bob comes to church and Bob serves and Bob's professed to be a Christian for a long time, and when you talk to Bob, he may or may not be, you know, he might be a more quieter guy, at least in some respects. But you look at Bob's life, and you know, you see marks of faithfulness over a certain amount of time. But Bob comes to you and says, I don't know if I'm a Christian. If you say to Billy, hey, Billy, I need you to just rest in the objective work of Christ on your behalf. And if you say to Bob, hey, Bob, I need you to examine yourself. I need you to test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith or not then you are not carefully applying what we can call gospel and legal tincture to these specific environments. Because what you will do is you will kill Billy. And you will kill Bob. The reason you will kill Billy is because Billy is not hearing what he needs to hear. Billy needs to hear a Billy. God's word says this. And you don't display the fruits of one who has been justified or on the path of sanctification. Therefore, I call you to examine yourself and test yourself and look at your external behaviors. But if you go over to Bob and say to Bob, Bob, I need you to examine yourself. That is, look at your external behaviors. Then all Bob will do is look at his external behaviors, which will be ebbing and flowing. And his assurance will be crushed. But the more you say to Bob, hey, Bob, look, if you look at your outward behavior and you look at your day to day life and your journey of sanctification and you take that aspect of your sanctification and try and apply it to your justification. All you'll ever see is failure. But when you look at Jesus Christ, all you'll ever see, Bob, is perfection. And so rest in that, Bob. Rest in that. You're justified, Bob. Don't look at your external works, Bob. Those external works will be the fruit of you resting in the perfect work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Well, the foundation and the fountain, the theological beginning that can then fuel our practical application and lastingly set us apart more and more for Christ the Son who loved us and who lived for us, and who died for us to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this time. Father, we pray that you would bless these truths through our heart. We thank you for the fully sanctified Son who went ahead of us. We thank you that we're in union with him by your grace. Lord, many a way to consider our sanctification and none greater than to look at the very grounds and fuel for growth and godliness and the person and work of our precious Son, your precious Son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Would you aid us? Would you bless us? Would you comfort us? For anyone here who struggles with assurance, Lord, would you help them to look at and rest in the perfect work of Jesus Christ? And may that be an aid to sanctification and godliness. And so we thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.